0: This is Getting Lit with Linda Mora, the podcast where you can come and get lit, Canadian lit, that is. Join Linda as she talks about authors in Canada and sometimes with them, using her expertise to shed light on recent and not so recent writers. And now, get set for Getting Lit with Linda. Hi,
1: this is Linda Mora, the writer and host of Getting Lit with Linda. I'm currently speaking and recording on the traditional territory of the Kanyakahaga, a place that has long served as a site of meeting and exchange among many First Nations, including the Kanyakahaga of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, Hernwendat, wendat Abenaki, and Anishnabe. Today I have the great honor and privilege of interviewing the magnificent Niska writer Jordan Abel. I've been following Abel's trajectory as a poet for a little while, since he published The Place of Scraps by Talon Press in 2013, for which he won the BC Book Prize, and more recently Injun, which won the Griffin Poetry Prize and was published by Talon in 2016. Abel and I spoke today about his most recent work titled Nishka, published by McClelland and Stewart in 2020. This book, which is a deeply personal and autobiographical foray into the complexities of Indigenous lives and identities, also looks at the intergenerational repercussions of residential schools. For our international listeners, please note that the Indigenous residential schools were part of an aggressive campaign to assimilate and colonize Indigenous peoples in Canada. Indigenous children were forcibly removed from their families and put into these schools where they had to give up their traditions, languages, and cultural practices. Abel's book emerged just before the bodies of 215 children were found, buried at the Kamloops Indian Residential School in British Columbia's Southern Interior, the beginning of what will undoubtedly be a much larger investigation. And so he discusses in Nishka not only how unsurprising this quote-unquote discovery, is for the Indigenous, and not only the traumatic legacies of this institution, but also how he and others are addressing these legacies in strong, clear, and inspiring voices. This is my interview with Jordan Abel. Hi Jordan, Uh, welcome to Getting Lit with Linda.
0: Hi, Linda. Glad to
1: be here. Why don't you tell the listeners where you're at right now?
0: Sure. I'm currently in Edmonton on Treaty 6 territory.
1: Brilliant. Thank you. Today we're going to be talking about your new book. So I thought we would begin with the title of the book and the red hot H in the middle of it. Could you comment on the title and the visual aspect of the title?
0: Yes. So the the book is called Nishka. And it is a uh, just c- commenting on the design part of it. Uh, McClelland and Stewart, they really were were interested in, in dropping some some color onto the mm-hmm. uh, onto the cover of the book. So they put uh, so they made the H red, and also in the ovoid shapes, there's also some some blue in there. On the cover, and that and that image is from uh, a section in the book that that doesn't have any color. <laughs> <laughs> and the uh, yeah the the the, tit- the title Nishka I think is uh, is is definitely one of the things that that many many people ask about, uh, and it comes from two places in the book. Um, so the so the the first place that it comes from uh is is a business card uh from from my dad um where he he writes about his own artistic practice but then also uses the spelling nishka Mm n-i-s-h-g-a as opposed to niska and i I'm sure it comes up, you know, else elsewhere in the book too. But
1: oh, I think it, we might know it does. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but you know, it operates to me as as you know one one of like the central concepts and 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 disconnects that the book is built around. We'll
1: probably return to that. I had a question about education as a kind of an important and recurring topic in the book. In one instance, for example. You remark on the University of Alberta and how during your undergraduate program there wasn't a single indigenous author included in your courses, which by the way was my experience as well. So what do you think the role of education is in this book? And how does that jive with the role that you now play as an educator?
0: I, I think there is absolutely a role that education takes in this book. You know, both my my conversations about education and pedagogy within the book. Mm -hmm. um, As I I mostly talk about them, you know, in relation to, in in relation to public performances as an artist and my responsibility there Mm -hmm. um, as, as to whether or not those uh, public artistic spaces should also be educational spaces. But I, I think further than that, my hope for the book was that, it would serve an educational purpose in some ways, and and you know I was really hoping that my writing and my my thinking around intergenerational trauma and the legacy of violence that ripples outwards from residential schools uh, and and also the state of being in the world as an urban indigenous person and or as an indigenous person who's dispossessed from their from their home territory or severed from their home community in some ways that that those issues you know would become illuminated at least a little bit uh, upon reading the book my hope you know was that people who were unfamiliar with the way that residential schools have so deeply impacted all aspects you know of our communities and us individually, that they would lear- learn a bit about what those experiences might look like and how how that violence uh, moves between and across generations.
1: Which I think this book so aptly does. It captures that so evocatively at so many moments. There's a a moment in the text in which you differentiate between those who listen and those who witness, and that witnessing is really a more embodied experience. It's followed by this amazing sequence, disturbing, too, of photos that then culminate in more sharply delineated images. I'm afraid to give it all away, you know? One in reference to Duncan Campbell Scott, who of course had a substantial hand in all of this in relation to the residential schools. And then another that relates to the residential school where your grandparents actually went. So I wondered if you could comment on the difference between witnessing and listening and what role the reader has in relation to the book in vis-a-vis witnessing and listening.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's such an important distinction, you know, in, in the book and also in my reading life. Um, and... Part of the way that I've that I've felt this, you know, has has been uh, has been through reader response in in some ways where folks have reached out to me about the book and have really struggled in some cases to articulate and express their feelings about the book and I think you know really actively resisted telling me that they like it <laughs> in some cases uh, you know because. It, because that's not quite the right formation, you know, or that's not quite the right response to to a book like this, and in, and instead, perhaps there are other responses, you know. So when I when I think about witnessing, and in the book I talk a lot, I think think a lot about uh, about the work that Samantha Nock has done on witnessing, and about the way Dave Gartner has has framed it a bit as well. Um, I think that. That process, that process of witnessing, is 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 a deeply embodied one that uh, that asks asks us to really take into ourselves the the book that we're reading or the story that we're hearing or the the film that we're viewing and and not necessarily to respond to it or to say something in response, you know, but to but to absorb it in some way and allow, allow it to to linger in, in your body and your mind and I, I think that's such a such an incredibly powerful approach you know particularly for works of indigenous literatures and and particularly again for works of indigenous literatures that are about uh, residential school violence you know it, and it, it's, it's one that I've I've carried forward with me in my own reading practices, you know, when I think about other other works of indigenous literatures that I, you know, might never write about or might might never you might never even teach, potentially because of how difficult and powerful they are, and, and because of my own process of of reading those those writings as as works of testimony and and trying to take him in as a witness. And I, I think listening, you know, on the other hand, it, I think is perhaps less, it, it, it's perhaps maybe less, less, maybe it's more active actually, uh, but, <laughs> uh, but but certainly I think there's, there's a performance part of listening you know where you you demonstrate <laughs> uh, how, how you've been listening and what you've been hearing and and in in some cases maybe that uh, means um, responding in certain ways so you know I, I think that that distinction between listening and witnessing is is really uh, is really an interesting one for me and one that I'm I'm very keen on using in my own reading practices.
1: You reference in the book, this figure you've addressed before in previous work in the place of scraps, Marius Barbeau, the anthropologist who played a role in removing not only totem poles, but the totem pole from the community where your grandparents were born, which I found really disturbing. Is Nishka a response? Is this book a response to Barbeau and if it is, in what way
0: is it? Yes, yeah, I, I, I think that it, I think that it is, and I, I think that you know, in my work, the place of scraps, uh, which is more centered around Barbeau, you know, I, I think they're both, they're both responses, um, and I, I think they're both very different responses. Like I, I see those, I see those two books uh, as being part of a trajectory, and I would agree with that when when i was writing the place of scraps many many of the questions that uh that come up in nishka you know were questions that i was thinking through when i was writing the place of scraps but had not quite articulated or written down and 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 the writing took on this different shape and and part of that, you know, was that this really intense focus on Barbeau. And so the Place of Scraps, you know, always, always comes back to Barbeau and always comes back to salvage anthropology uh, and how that imp- impacted my community and, and also me and how I relate to and understand particularly that totem pole that was removed from the Nass River Valley and encountered it again at the Royal Ontario Museum of all places.
1: Unbelievable, um, but
0: you know, I think this—I uh, think Nishka is is very much an, an extension of, of that work. You know, it's a it's a continuation in that in, instead of just asking how salvage anth- anthropology has impacted me, I'm asking how residential schools have impacted me, and I think they're in, interrelated and overlapping questions. Um, and that can't really be separated yeah. you know I think as as a result those those two books have been my most personal books so far um, and I, I think they're they're tied together and intertwined in ways that I, I find really productive <laughs> uh, and and hopefully other others find productive as well there's literally a I think maybe five, five or six pages included from the place of scraps in this in this book, and in, in the larger structure of the book, I'm I'm also often reflecting on past artistic practices and how I how I fit in relation to the art that I produce, and you know both looking both looking to the past and also looking to the future because the book ends with me thinking about another project that I'm going to do later. So um, looking
1: forward to that.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah in, in some ways, was, you know, this book is both past and present and future, tying all these different things together.
1: I, in conversation with a colleague, she suggested that, that Nishka could be read as a lament for what was lost or as a cultural artifact that's returned to the Niska people. What would you say to that?
0: that's that's really powerful you know it's so difficult to tell sometimes how certain work will be taken up or you know what role it will play and as as a writer I often don't don't know you know I, I don't know you know how how people will, will read things or how they'll will take them up or or even if if they will read them <laughs> and I think my 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 hope for this book was that it would reach the people that need it in some ways and and I and I do hope that that's true I get the sense that it's it's already doing some of that work um, I don't know I, I don't I don't know how how books circulate out in the wild sometimes <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I certainly hope that it will it will be a something of value for for many people and in, in, in particular for for people who are intergenerational survivors of residential schools and urban Indigenous peoples, but also for everyone.
1: Uh, recently, M. Norbeze Philip, the poet, recently tweeted about her book Zong, that the most important feature for her work are the silences on the page not the words themselves. So what role do silences or gaps or absences serve in your book?
0: So many. <laughs> I, yeah, I I love Norbert C. Phillips' work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think, I think the world is on. And it's, it's so funny, actually, I, when I wrote The Place of Scraps, you know, and when that book came out, you know, like the the first comparison that uh, that came to me was was Zong, and I, and I hadn't actually read that book at that time, so I I you know immediately got out of the library, and it's since become you know a book that I return to again and again, and I and you know I think those silences in particular, I would agree, like those are they're they're so. Enormous, you know, in in so many ways in that work. In in Nishka, I think there's actually a few different types of uh, types of silences. Um, so there's in in the transcription sections, you know, where I have when I when I transcribe artist talks, there are are moments that are. That are timestamps that have no dialogue attached to them. They have, have nothing, nothing being transcribed. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, and those silent, and, and the, so there are si- silences there in the, in the audio recording that I'm moving into the space uh, of, of the text. And, and, and those silences, you know, very specifically respond to moments of silence in, in the talks that I was giving. So moment moments where I've paused moments where nothing has been said but there but there are other silences in the book too i think you know there's there's certain kinds of of ethical silences Um, so there that there were many many documents that i didn't include in Nishka because they were stories that were not mine to tell Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, part of, part of the experience of reading Nishka is encountering all of these different documents and, and seeing them in relation to, to each other and also to my transcripts and concrete poetry, but there, but in my mind anyway, there, there are, are many silences in this book where there are, are things that I didn't articulate that the, that the reader is unaware of for the most part, mm-hmm. um, and and then there are, I think, other other silences in in the book that come in the form of of images, in a sense, you know, where the reader is not not necessarily asked to to read and interpret and to, but instead they're asked asked to to see <laughs> and take in visually, and I, I think those are think about those moments as moments of silence as well that they are that the reader is still being presented with something but it's not uh it's not textual and and auditory in the way that readers of books might imagine a page in a book to to be so so i see all all three of those different types of silences working in conjunction with each other working in parallel in some ways and potentially there there are more there are more types of silences as well.
1: <laughs> so I'm thinking now about the strategies of representation in the text the way that you decide to represent certain things. So there are words that are we learn later not until toward the end of the book that are excerpted from another text called Empty Spaces. And so um we really don't know that until we get toward the end of the book. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <So laughs> why did you decide on this strategy of representation? So for those who have not yet picked up the book, what you need to know is that the, this, the texts are embedded in images earlier in the book.
0: Yes. Yeah. So this came up in a, for for me, this came up in a really organic way. So parts, Part of the process of putting together this book was encountering my family archive and uh, and and like sifting through all these documents and, and photographs and many of the photographs were of my dad's art uh, and you know I'm, I'm a very visual person and if you've uh, seen the place of scraps you probably know this about me you know but I, I do. I, 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 I think I think very visually often and and I just thought it would be so incredible to to begin a dialogue with my dad through his artwork and and to think through his art and, and to to think seriously, you know, through his art and through the contours and the shapes that I had access to. And and, and I guess to think artistically about that that work as well. So as I was going through all these photographs and and finding these pieces of of art that my dad made, I felt like I should find find ways to position them within the book and to and to put them in dialogue with my own artistic practices. And so you know, it just so happened that the other project that I was working on while I was working on Nishka was this project called Empty Spaces mm-hmm. that uh, is con- conceptually indebted to uh, James Fenimore Cooper's book, The Last of the Mohicans, uh, which is, of course, a really problematic and, and difficult book, but one that, you know, has a very prominent place in the canon of American novels. Uh, and, and also one that I think really... Uh, as as Dunbar ortiz talks about you know in that book she she makes this argument that uh James Fenimore Cooper's book the Last of the Mohicans was instrumental in nullifying the uh, the guilt related to genocide and i thought that was such an incredible argument to make about a literary work mm-hmm. um, so you know i started i started working with James Fenimore Cooper's book and i started pulling out, you know, all of these descriptions of land and territory and writing over them and writing through them and writing beyond them. Um, and, and really like very quickly, empty spaces moves on from those conceptual, that conceptual origin points uh, of the last and the Mohicans. And, in, and instead becomes this work that's about rewriting and returning to and reconfiguring uh, where my process as a as as a writer, as a as a text text artist, you know, is to is to take a sentence that I've written a dozen times before and to rewrite it and then to return to that sentence again and again. Mm-hmm. And that's and and through that process, you know I'm really thinking about my relationship to the land, my my relationship to niska territory, which is, in some, in some ways, a relationship of imagination, and so thinking through that artistically by way of fiction, I think is is an important artistic move for me to make. So, so this all all being said, that was empty spaces was this project I was working on, and I was also looking at all of my dad's artistic works, and it, it felt like those those two separate artistic outputs should be in conversation with each other in some way. Mm. Uh, and so I and so I ended up putting some of those put, putting some of the text of empty spaces into and around my dad's artwork and that kind of forms the visual trajectory for the book. And you know one one of my friends describes that section or like thread uh, as being the most hopeful section of the book, mm-hmm. and that it was uh, it was a work of intergenerational collaboration, and I think that that's true.
1: Yes, I would agree with that. Yeah,
0: and I, I think that that part of the book to me was in some ways the most rewarding um, because I, I never had a, had a chance to to learn any. Any artistic stuff from my dad and to and to have that moment where I was able to to work with the shapes that he had made, you know and the, and the contours of his his work I think was a really powerful one for me artistically. Um, also also a diffi- a difficult moment at the same time.
1: You suggest something along those lines in the actual book where you comment on how you get to know your father's art in some ways more than your father. And then you wonder if you can get to know someone through their art. And it's such a moving, deeply moving moment. I am not asking any question here, rather just noting.
0: Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that was, um, I think that, that moment is just very, very is a very honest moment. You know, and I, I think the whole whole book tries to be as open and as as honest as I could as I could make it, and that those questions about if if you can get to know someone through their artistic work, I mm-hmm. I still I still think about that. <laughs> you know, I'm not sure if I have a good answer to that question, uh, and and certainly you know I think that was. That was a thing I was trying to do um, as I put my dad's artwork in, in, in and alongside my own.
1: On a slightly now different trajectory, you yes. self-identify at various junctures throughout the book as an urban Indigenous person. So in fact, there are moments in your book that remind me of uh, Paul C. The Republic of Tricksterism that other literary text. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, that addresses the complexities in relation to urban Indigenous identities. So how does one, as an urban Indigenous person, navigate identity away from a geographical context with which their identity may be connected or identified, or by which that identity may be informed?
0: I, I think that's such an important question and one that I really struggled with. And, and one that quite honestly, like I know many of my friends struggle with too, who are from sim- similar, s- similar backgrounds where their, their relationships to their home communities and their, and their nations are not as, as strong as, you know, maybe they'd like them to be or, or in, in some cases you know where there's no pathway back mm-hmm. to to their relationships with community um, and i i, I think it's, it's it's been really difficult to to navigate the world as an urban indigenous person and in, in part because i I think there are i mean there's lots of ways to be indigenous in the world but But I think some of the ways, you know, and some of the ways that, you know, we collectively uphold are some of those ways are about having these close relationships to community, having like, you know, like returning to traditional indigenous knowledges, traditional languages and and cultural practices and engaging with, with your community that you're Mm -hmm. from. And I think, it's is so strange to exist in a world where that seems like an impossibility, and that, and that finding your pathway back to community is instead this really difficult fraught process that may never be one that is complete. So I so I, I think about that a lot, and you know a lot of my my a lot of the original catalysts for me in thinking about writing this book. Um, we're about that question about how to how to navigate the how to navigate the world as an urban indigenous person and you know how to and and, and how to th- how to think through certain concepts like uh pan-indigeneity that i think yeah. has very rightly in some cases had a lot of um It invited a lot of criticism, (laughs) but, but also in other cases, you know, I think there's like, there, there's, there's arguments for certain kinds of pan-Indigenous formations and collectivity that uh, can create community. So I guess this is all to say that I I think it's a very fraught subject. And I tried to, I tried to write about it ah, as openly as I could in this book And I don't know if I, I don't know if I came to any, any firm answers other than I think urban indigenous peoples are deserving, you know, of, of time and space and that we should think through those, we we, we should think through the, the constructs and the circumstances that have led us to these moments rather than Rather than asking everyone to be in relation to community in, this, in the same ways.
1: That was very clear. As someone who was witnessing, bearing witness to the book, that was very clear to me. Now, along the same lines, you speak about, in the book, about being doubly dispossessed. You're borrowing a term from someone by the name of Natalie Knight. yes. So, so you speak about being doubly dispossessed from Nisga knowledges and land. How might Indigenous persons, a Nisga person, move forward with a sense of Indigenous nationalism? Is that possible?
0: Yeah, I, I think this is also a question that I've, I've struggled with and one that I, I had hopes would have easier answers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, I, I think in an ideal world, what would happen... Is that I would have the time and space and money that would allow me to just go back and be in community um, for as long as I needed to, and to to exist in that space and uh, and have time to to learn the language from language teachers who were willing and 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 enthusiastic about about teaching me, and and I think that's. I think in, in some ways that is not a realistic plan <laughs> for a person that lives in the world. Um, I think I've always, I've always had to, to balance, to balance that stuff, you know, with just finding ways to pay my rent. And now yeah. uh, I'm, I'm a recent father. My, my daughter is uh, 14 months old. Like so I have to be at home for her and, and in previous instances, almost all previous previous instances until right now, I've been very poor, you know, and uh you know, not um I, I, I guess, you know, just not not able to take that time and space to do these things, you know, while also doing an MFA or a PhD or writing books. And I think the, at the end of Nishka, you know, I, I talk about you know trying to be indigenous in my own way, and also thinking about indigenous resurgence and a pathway back to uh, Nishka knowledge and, and language as being a lifelong pathway instead, uh, instead of one that could be accomplished in in a shorter, shorter time frame, And I, I think that's, that's where that goal has to shift for me is that it, it might be the case that I'm always trying to return home. That might be, might be a whole lifetime of trying to do this. Um, and I, and I'm okay with that. And, and at previous moments, I was working on being okay with that, <laughs> you know, uh, but, but I think it is I think it's it is difficult uh, for for some people to to find those pathways back for so many reasons. Um, yeah, so maybe that's where I'll'll I'll leave that for now. <laughs> well,
1: these are questions that are not, as you say, easily answered or I think that can be raised and then answered slowly over time. So much about this book is about the nature of questions, the kinds of questions that are being raised, not only the ones that you raise for yourself, but also for others, about how we should read Indigenous texts. I was thinking that you reference the book by Helen Hoy, How Should We Read These? Right? How do we read certain texts and so forth? And then I was thinking of some of the more egregious questions that you're confronted by in your text, the ones that ask you, where are you from? Or um, the ones that are more foundational, like, what is testimony? What is testimony capable of? But one of the ones that I found particularly painful is uh, about your research during the context of an academic interview, where the professor raises a hand and asks you the question, what's new about this? Right. <laughs> your answer, the tone of which I felt expressed both pain and weariness might also apply to the book. Which is that your your answer was that there's nothing new. So insofar as that might hold true, what would you for the listeners explain what the lack of newness really means?
0: Yeah, I think uh, I, I think it's incredibly important. You know, I I think one of the really difficult things that that happens, you know, that continues to happen, but. Uh, it kind of came to the came to light, or it, the Canadian media started paying attention attention to it really early on, just after the book was published. It was it was the discovery of mm-hmm. of many many unmarked graves oh, yeah. at many residential school sites, and and I think some of the you know it's, it's such an incredibly heartbreaking and difficult thing to talk about and, and to, especially to encounter in the Canadian news media. But, you know, I think one of the most frustrating, uh, responses that I heard over and over again from like non-Indigenous peoples was, was one of surprise. Uh, and I think it's, it really should not, not have been a surprise at all, Yeah. Um, and and likewise, uh, you know, I think I think for I, I think Nishka, some people kind of were talk were talking about my book, you know, at that time as being a timely book that it, this book was about residential schools and that and this this, this stuff, you know, was was happening, um, and that my book was in, in, in some way in, informative. And, and timely for that reason and I really felt like my book is not a timely one it's a it's an overdue book one that should have been written years ago and the the things that I'm the questions that I'm dealing with even as they relate to me personally have lingered with me my entire life even when I was unable to articulate those questions so I think um, can 36 right now very so, young you know the book is the book isn't 36 years overdue exactly but it's 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 a thing that i've been you know working on in various ways my whole life it just happens to be that like this was the moment that it was ready enough <laughs> to enter into the world and you know and part of that for me you know was honestly the constraints of the PhD program that I was—I just happened to be working on a PhD when I felt like I really needed to write this book, and that helped, in, in sometimes like an artificial way, to to have specific dates that I had to meet and deadlines that I had had to meet, and 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 that really catalyzed some of the writing. But but I, I think you know many of these many if not all of the, the things that I write about are, are things that I think should have been addressed previously and that, that there is a gap you know in my mind of, of literature that specifically addressed uh, intergenerational trauma and I, I just kind of felt like I was doing trying to do my part to, to fill in some of those silences but that Again, my feeling is that all, all of this stuff is long overdue.
1: <laughs> I have one really final question. I think my final question. Um, sure. You're really modest about your accomplishments, I find. You conclude the book even by saying, but I am standing here and I honestly can't imagine a world where that will ever be enough, but it is something. So I feel like I want to say you are standing here. It is enough. And it's far more than just something. In fact, I, I, I feel compelled to ask you what it's like to have achieved this literary stardom.
0: <laughs> yeah. You know, I think that's so funny. I, I, it's, it's one of those things that it's difficult to see from the inside. Maybe. It's, um, from the inside, like I just, I kind of feel like I'm, you know, that that last moment in the book, I really was wondering what what is it that I can do that's is is offering something, and I I think in that moment, you know, I honestly wasn't wasn't sure, um, and I think you know, as as I've moved forward from that moment. I have, I have come around again a bit to to thinking that literature really does do something. It is powerful in the ways that it can create and connect community. And, and I do very much value, value it for that, for for the ways that it, that it does that. Um, And I think if, if there's something that I hope that this work does it's that it allows other people who have been in in similar situations to to, to see themselves a bit and just and to, and to see to see me wrestling with some of these questions and, and trying to think through them and and also arguing for their legitimacy and, and place in the world um, and and I, I do I do hope that it it does that I, I think there there are so many I think there's so many moments of despair that I have sometimes when I think about what is it that I, that I can do what is it what good does does poetry do for example <laughs> I think that's you know one of the questions that I think comes up sometimes especially in relation to certain kinds of like of activism and and i do i do continue to wonder about that but i i think i think my answer is or you know i think my response is in part to say th- thank you and and also I, I i see this this book and this work doing something <laughs> and and you know i I'm 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 thankful for that.
1: Thank you Jordan. Thank you for standing here. Thank you for allowing me to interview you today. I really really appreciate it. Um, and I hope um, I hope that others will pick up this book. I think it's a remarkable book and should be as widely read as possible.
0: Thank you so much Linda. I really I really appreciate that and 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 I I really appreciate you uh, helping to spread the word, too. I I also hope it it finds its way to to the people that would find it useful. That was Getting Lit with Linda, hosted by Linda Mora. If you have a topic you would like to see covered, write to us at gettinglitwithlinda at gmail.com. Until next time, we hope you continue to get lit.